We're going to be taking a look. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to um, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you guys remember, we've been going through the, the story of, of David and Goliath and using it as a touchstone to talk about um, how we take care of the giants in our lives. And this morning, we're actually going to be taking a little bit closer look at some of the text in the actual story. So if you're getting there, uh, we're going to start in verse 38, and we're just going to go through, I want to make some observations. <clears throat> so the story picks up, <clears throat> David, if you remember, has come to bring food to his brothers who are in the Israelite army. There's a champion guy, a Philistine champion named Goliath there. He, he goes out every day and he shouts challenges to the Israelite army, insults, <clears throat> and he dares somebody to fight him and nobody will fight him. So David has decided that he is gonna fight the, the giant, the champion. And uh, um, he goes to the king, his name is Saul. And uh, he says, I'm gonna do this. And then Saul says, okay, well, if you're gonna go, uh, may God be with you. And then this is, what, this is what the text says. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like for he had never worn such things before because David was, anybody remember? Shepherd. He was a shepherd, right? He'd never worn these things. He was a shepherd. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into a shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. So again, uh, we started this series basically talking about the giants in our lives. And we defined a giant as anything that causes fear in your life, anything that gets you stuck, anything that inhibits your spiritual growth. And so if you're sitting here this morning and maybe this is your first Sunday here for this series, maybe this is your third, I would just ask you, you know, what, what is the giant in your life? What are you afraid of? It could be a hurricane coming. Uh, what are you afraid of? What has got you stuck in, in your life? Fear, isolation. And uh, as, as I saw it, uh, as we started to think about it and talk about it over the summer, it seemed to me that God has given five smooth stones to the church to help deal with the giants in our lives. And these five smooth stones, we've already dealt with a couple of them, are discipleship, the, the stone of community or connexity as we call it, Today, we're gonna to be talking about this thing called invitation and then service and worship. And these are the core stones that God has entrusted to his church. And it's my opinion and my experience that these stones deal with an awful lot of giants in your life. The things that we are afraid of, the things that keep us stuck, the things that hold us back in our life. If you engage in these types of activities, with an open heart to what God wants to do, you will see giants fall. So that's where we're at in the series. David goes and he talks to his king. He says, I'm gonna go fight this giant. And the king's like, well, you better have some armor. So he gives him his armor. He gives him a sword. David puts the armor on. He straps the sword on. He takes a couple steps and he's like, king, this is not gonna work. He says, I'm not used to these things. So he goes and he goes to a stream bed and he picks up five smooth stones and he has a shepherd's sling. And uh, here's the deal, I made myself a sling this morning. I did some studying about slings this week. 
Sling is one of the most uh, ancient weapons. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. And, and essentially all it is is a couple pieces of, of string or rope with a little pouch in the middle of it. In David's time, they would be made out of hemp or some kind of, um, some kind of material. And then this would be woven and you just have this length and then you put the stone in the little, in the little uh, pouch and you wind this around your head two or three times and you let it go. It's a pretty simple tool to fight a giant, right? To fight a giant who is, who's, who is in armor, who has a sword. The text also says that Goliath was a soldier since he was a young, young man. And David's a shepherd. He's been a shepherd since he was a young, young man. But when the king offers him the tools of war, the tools that would make sense to fight, David's like, no, 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 no. I can't use these things. Let me use the tools that I know. Let me use the tools that are appropriate for who I am as a shepherd. And so he goes out with a sling and five smooth stones. Let's pick up the story again. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. So Goliath is like, all right, this is gonna be an easy. I'm gonna be back, I'll be back in camp eating eggs in 15 minutes. <laughs> and you have to understand, like to just draw this, draw this contrast out just a little bit more. Uh, David or Goliath is a fighting man and he is experienced and David is a shepherd boy. And I'm, I'm kind of a history geek and, and I read historical novels and, and, and I love to, to study about, actually a lot about military history. And here's what I know about a lot of military history that whenever you have a trained fighting soldier against an inexperienced shepherd that just happens to be in a battle, it does not go well for the shepherd. In the history of our country, we have this history of the militia and the Revolutionary War and the Minutemen. And it's a noble, noble image that really has, has uh, encapsulates a lot of our imagination of what the Revolutionary War does. But if you looked at the history, the militia did not fare well against the trained British army. It was only when the Continental Army kind of got trained and they become, became more disciplined that we were able to stand against the, the British army. And, it, and it's like that all over the world and all over history. When you have a standing, trained, professional army that goes up against a bunch of guys who are just shepherds and storekeepers, and they're just out there fighting for their land, it tends to not go very well. The army wins. And this is the situation, because David's just there. He's there. He wasn't even going to fight. He was going to bring food to his brothers. And he's like, well, I guess I'm just gonna tackle this thing, this giant. But here's what David has. Verse 45, David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in what? The name of the Lord of heaven's armies. That's David's trump card, pardon the pun. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give, uh, give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. 
And I love this phrase, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And if you're a person who likes to underline phrases in your Bible, I do, just underline that phrase, the whole world will know. And everybody assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. Listen, but not with the sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. So David the shepherd is going against Goliath, the trained man of war. And he's going with the tools that he knows, a simple sling, but he's going with a lot of faith. And he says repeatedly that like, look, uh, Goliath, I'm not even gonna fight you with military weapons. I'm gonna fight you with something else. I'm gonna fight you with the weapon of God's people, which is the faith in the strength of God. So David, as he goes into this battle, he turns away. He turns away from, the, from the, the method of accomplishing the purpose that we would all expect, you know? So it's like Goliath has a sword, but we would want David to be like, well, Mike, David, why don't you get like a gun or, or a spear, something that you don't, you know, use the weapons that would give you an advantage. And, and David's like, no, no, no. I got the name of, of God. God's gonna do this thing. It's faith, it's faith, it's faith. So as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. He doesn't even wait. He's like, let's get this thing started. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone for he had no sword, right? Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. So again, I was doing some investigating this week and you know, you go to YouTube and, and I, I just, I just uh, searched for shepherd's sling. And then these guys who had slings just like this and they were just out in uh, their backyards or in the country and they would just wind these things up and let them go. And actually had a guy who was uh, an expert in this weapon today. And he could hit uh, a sort of a one by three inch target, which was about the size they think of, of Goliath's forehead that wasn't covered up with a helmet. So he could do it, bam, hit him. And they uh, had like the things on there that can measure the force of impact of the stone. And uh, they did all the data stuff that they do. And, and they said, hey, if this stone hit a, a, a forehead, um, it would fracture the forehead, sink into the brain um, and kill, right? So as best we could tell, this is verified by modern scientific uh, uh, evidence. Like David can do this. So he does it, wham, 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 wham. And I, the text to me is a little bit ambiguous because it says the stone goes into his head. We know it's enough to kill him. Goliath falls over. Mm -hmm. Then David went, goes up and pulls the sword out. And the text also says he kills him, cuts his head off, which at that, at that point, you're really dead. <laughs> okay, you might be mostly dead after the stone. Now you're really dead if your head's off your body. But it speaks to me that David accomplishes this with the weapons that God has given him. Not the weapons that all manner of common sense would say to use. Bam, Goliath falls over. Then David goes up and with the weapon of war, cuts his head off. So 
here's, where I, here's what I want to kind of uh, start us off with today. Because I want to go back to that phrase where David says, look, Goliath, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to feed the bodies of your men to the birds and, and the wild animals. And the whole world will know, right? We're talking today about invitation. And invitation is, is a word that we use around here that is uh, synonymous with evangelism. And evangelism simply means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion that means good news. It's really that simple. And what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that when you see giants slain in your life or in the life of your friends, that is a form of evangelism. Because David says, look, Goliath, when you fall over, when this guy that's been causing so much fear and so much trepidation in Israel, Goliath, when you fall over, the world is going to know that there's a God in Israel. Because sometimes I think what I'm trying to get at is that uh, we forget that God does amazing things. And some of us also, however, get caught up in the amazing things that would be sort of more headline grabbing. I mean, I know per people who have, uh, I really do know people who I believe have been healed. And that is a miracle. And I think when people experience or when they see a story like that, they're like, man, there's a God and he's alive in the 21st century and he's doing cool things. But I don't want us to, to lose sight of the fact that sometimes miracles are very subtle things. Because I happen to believe that a changed heart is a miracle. I believe that a, 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 a repurposed outlook on life is a miracle. And when those things happen, there is a God in the 21st century and he's alive and he's well. I've been sitting in my growth group for the last few weeks and we've been just learning each other's stories. Man, let me tell you, based on the stories in my growth group, there's a God and he's alive and well. Because already just in three weeks, we're hearing so many cool stories of what people struggle with, but what God is doing in their lives. That's amazing to me. So I wanna continue this discussion of, of invitation and evangelism and I wanna skip over to the New Testament now. And I wanna look at a, a story, a parable that Jesus tells to a group of people. And it's actually where we get the whole concept of invitation from. Years ago, Pastor Mark really got seized with the idea of invitation by reading this parable. It's, it's called the parable of the great feast. And he said, you know what? I think we need to start talking, using the language of invitation around here instead of evangelism. So here we go. We're just gonna jump through this. Uh, this, this story real quick, starting in 22, Matthew chapter 22. Starts like this. Jesus told them other parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So a couple, a couple things right off the bat. Uh, we're told that Jesus is speaking in parables here. And in case you don't know, his audience here are the religious and political leaders of Israel. And that matters. He's telling this story to a, a specific group of people and he's using a specific rhetorical device called a parable to teach them. Parable is a, is a, a way of telling a story. The, the Greek word literally means to kind of throw alongside. And what the imagery there is there is that you have a point you wanna make 
But instead of addressing the point directly, you tell a story right alongside the story. And a couple things about parables. Uh, Parables are designed to make you think. They don't do the work for you. So when you hear a parable, you should be like, okay, wait a minute. Where am I in this story? It doesn't always come across really easy when Jesus tells a parable. You have to think about it. And as I've come to learn over, over the years, if, if a parable doesn't trouble you, you probably need to reread the parable and find out what you're missing. Because almost every single one of Jesus's parables are designed to unsettle his audience. It should make you squirm a little bit. There should be some aspect of the parable that, that makes you go, oh, oh, I don't, what does that mean, Jesus? So he's, he's dealing in parables. And one other note, a parable is not an allegory. So you can't always go, uh, go through the parable and go, oh, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. They don't always line up. Parables, by their definition, uh, they, they heighten some aspects of stories and they diminish some aspects of stories because Jesus is trying to make you work for it. So they're not literal. The king is having a feast. The king is having a feast, a wedding feast for his son. And he wants everyone to come. He's like, it's time to have a party. And uh, I love this idea about who God is and the way he works. Because basically when God's happy, he wants to share. We talked last week about how God is community. He dwells eternally with three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And and whenever God is joyful, that joy overflows to somebody else. God exists in love with other people. And the more he feels love, the more he wants people involved. So he's like, I'm happy. I wanna share. Let's have a party. So he goes out and Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a feast and God has, wants everybody to come. And he's telling this to the religious leaders and he's like, but um, the people who were invited didn't show up. And instantly, if you are listening to this as a religious leader, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean the people who were invited didn't show up? We're here. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're missing. You are missing something. And the last idea that uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more um, is the idea that, man, when Jesus talks about life in the kingdom, he uses the, the image of a feast. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but like there are times when life in the church or life with Jesus has been described in ways that would not be very festive. Threats of like, hellfire and a wagging finger of you better not or if you, you know, friend of mine, if you died tonight, what would happen to you? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You know what it is? It's actually like a feast. It's a party. And so the corrective image in my mind is like, man, if we're trying to tell people about the kingdom of God, if we're trying to tell people about Jesus, there better be a feast in the story. It better sound like something good to go to. Another way that, that the kingdom has been sometimes described to me, I think erroneously, erroneously is like a test, a multiple choice test. Well, let's see how, how do you believe about God? 
Do you, A, true or false? B, true or fill in, maybe matching and fill in the blank if I'm lucky. Jesus is like, no, there's no test. You know what it is? It's a, it's a feast. It's a party and you're all invited. So then, verse four, Jesus goes on. So the king sent other servants to tell them, look, the feast has been prepared. The bulls and the fattened cattle have been killed. Everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. Whoa, that doesn't sound like Jesus that we're, that we're comfortable with. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. I'll start from the end. You know what the king wants? He wants the banquet hall to be filled. He wants the banquet hall to be filled and he will stop at nothing to fill the banquet hall. And that is like a corrective to me because when I read the king, so the king got angry and burned their town. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Where'd that come from? But parables should upset you. They should make you work a little bit. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna work at this. Well, see, the thing is that Jesus is talking to uh, the religious leaders of Israel and he knows there's a whole history of, of God's people actually doing this very thing. Like people showing up and going like, hey, let me tell you about... Uh, how you guys are missing the point about what God's trying to do in the world. And his messengers were insulted. Some of them were killed. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the prophets. The message here is also, I love this. He says, the servants in verse 10 brought in everyone they could find, both good and bad. Because why? The king wants the banquet hall filled. So I think sometimes in my economy, I'd be like, okay, well, so the first people didn't show up. So still the servants would go out and get all the good people, all the people that would be comfortable at the banquet. And the text says, no, the good people were there, but the bad people were there too, because the king's like, the banquet hall must be filled. It ends like this, the king came in to meet the guests. He noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, this is another uncomfortable part. The king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. What? Okay, you, you got to know that as I was studying this week, you know, uh, I've said this about this parable before. There are theologians that would call this the most troubling parable in, in the gospels. Like guys with, with lots of letters after their name would be like, this is hard. So don't think that I'm going to come to an easy answer, but I'll tell you something that, that did kind of speak to me this week. So the king sees this guy without clothes because I think there's a piece of us where we, we read that and we're like, wait a minute. So maybe it is a multiple choice test and it has to do with the dress code because I see the way a lot of you guys come into church on Sunday and you're in trouble. 
So it comes down to a dress code or what? And this, uh, this one theologian said, look, no, 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 read it, read it. The king sees a guy without the clothes and he comes up and he says, hey, what, what's up? How'd you get here? Why, why are you dressed this way? And what does the guy reply to the king? Nothing. And this theologian says, based on the text that the good folks are here, the bad folks are here, he wants the banquet hall filled. The guy said, you know what? I think anything that the guy would have said would have been acceptable to the king. Anything. If the guy just said, this is the best I could do, I just wanted to be at the banquet. But he didn't say anything to the king. Which in a way means that he responded just the same way that the first people that were invited responded. <laughs> So the king, so this guy, what this guy's trying to say is that maybe this guy just drifted into the banquet and he didn't even want to be there because when the king offered him a word and say, hey, what's up? The guy's like, I don't, I don't know you. I don't want to know you. And the guy's like, well, if, if you don't want to know me, then, then I guess you're just like the folks that I first invited. So you can go then be with them. And then it says, many are called. In the text, I would actually say, everybody's called, but few actually want to show up to the banquet. And that helps me a little bit. So here's a couple closing thoughts that I want to give you about invitation, evangelism. Um, one is there's a sense of urgency about this. There's a sense of urgency. You see, one of the things that takeaways from the parable is that you can't assume just because you show up at church every Sunday in Jesus' context, it's like, you can't assume just because you live in Israel that you've come to the feast, okay? Because you could show up at the feast and not give a flip about a relationship with the king who invited you. And let me make this a little bit more easy. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about discipleship and we talked about how eternal life to the first century was not something that happened when you died, Right? Anybody remember that? We said eternal life for Jesus and his hearers, eternal life was something that started now. You don't have to wait. And we talked about it in the positive way because life with Jesus means that the life in the kingdom of transcendent love and compassion and patience and peace is offered to us now, right? But here's the deal. I believe that the opposite is true as well. I believe that if you want to live a life of isolation, misery, hate, separation, if you want to make that your destiny, that can start well as, uh, as well. That can start now. Eternal life both ways starts this side of heaven. And so Jesus is like, look, <laughs> Don't just assume that because you come to church every Sunday that you've decided to come to the feast. And most of us, if I were to ask you if you've been around church for a little bit and you would say, hey, do you, do you know some Christians that have been coming to church for 20, 30 years and they are miserable people? And probably most of you would go like, yeah, I know a couple of them. Some of you might go, yeah, it's actually me. And I'm working on that. You do not come to the feast by just showing up at church. You have to decide. And that will be your destiny, I believe. You cultivate that now. Cultivate hate, isolation, separation, and that will just keep going. Cultivate love, peace, compassion, and that will just keep going 
forever, forever. This stuff matters. You have to choose. But then I want to circle back to the idea of like, look, on our side of things, if you are inviting people, if you're going out and you want to tell your, tell your friends and your, your family about life with God, please, please let there be a feast involved in your description. Don't be like, look, uh, I do this thing. It doesn't really make my life better. I'm kind of a miserable person, but maybe you should believe in Jesus too. Because I don't know if that does Jesus any, any favors. I think Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. There's a feast involved and we should talk about life with God like it's a feast. And N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, look, there are four hungers of the human heart. Four things that everybody tends to want. And I think these are the same four things that a feast would offer somebody. Number one is people have a hunger for relationship. They just do. People don't wanna be alone. And a feast is something where multiple people come and like you can be with other people and they're just as messed up as you are. But just come to this thing. It's going to be great. He also says that people have a delight and a desire for beauty. That everybody has a hunger to see beauty in their life. In feast terms, we would just call it good food. And I understand that like good food doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be served on fine china. I've had great food in the backyard, in somebody's backyard on a paper plate. I've had good food in, in nice restaurants. People crave something beautiful in their life. They also have a hunger for spirituality. And this is what I would call like, this the idea that there's something more in this world. More than just the things that can be tapped on and touched. Another way to put it is that people have a desire for transcendence. That's why we worship the way we do. Because we want a picture of beauty and a, and a picture of transcendence that people can embrace and be enveloped in. And the last thing that a feast offers and that the feast with God offers is that people have a longing for justice. Because you know a good feast, everybody gets fed. At a good feast, there's enough for everyone. And so at E3, at our little corner of the feast, that's why we send people to Guatemala. That's why we send people to Haiti. That's why we do things like serve Tallahassee because there's people in this world who don't have everything yet. And so when you're talking to people about the feast, about life with God, if they're hungry for any of these things, there's a place for them to come. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity for an invitation. If you see people who are struggling with isolation, see people who are, who are miserable, who, who don't know if there's anything more in the world, and are people who's like, man, there's something wrong in the world and I don't know what to do about it, you can say, guess what? I have a place for you. Why don't you just come and check this thing out? Invitation matters. And what's more is it kills giants. Remember that phrase we said? Look, Goliath, when you fall down, the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. 
And I love that because it makes me think that like, you know what? Some of us um, are struggling with doubt and I don't think God has a problem with doubt. I think doubt kind of jacks us up more than it jacks God up. Some of us, you, you have no idea what, what seeing another heart come alive to God will do for, for the doubt in your life. Because I've seen it hanging out with, with, with men and women who question like what their life's about and you be, they begin to have a taste of that spiritual life. They have a taste of the kingdom of God. And you know what I say in my heart when I see people come alive to God? I'm like, there's a God that's alive in the 21st century and he's still changing lives. Even when I'm struggling, he's still changing lives. So if you haven't seen God move and you even wonder, does he still do things like that? There's a stone up here with your name on it today. Because your giant is doubt, and your giant maybe is a lack of joy. So when the band plays, we do this thing now. Come up, grab your rock as a saying, man, I want God to do something in my life. To, and relatedly, there might be a name for that stone today. Maybe that stone is somebody specific that you're like, this person needs to taste the feast. And you know what? Maybe that name is yours. Maybe you've been hanging out here or hanging out in another church for a long time and you're like, man, I'm sure I've ever come to the feast. There's a stone up here with your name on it. You don't need to tell anybody about it. It doesn't have to be a big deal, although you feel welcome to fill out a connect card. But I'm just gonna pray and the band is gonna play and, and I would just say, when you get ready, just say, God, who is in my life that needs to come to the feast? And come up here, and as you grab the stone, just say their name, whisper their name in a prayer to God. And also maybe just say, God, I wanna see you move. I wanna see, I wanna see doubt dissipate in my life because I wanna know that you still slay giants. Let's pray. 